Dark Fascination. This is Mary. And this is April. Another week, another podcast, another excuse to talk about crazy True crime. <laughs> I feel like whenever we say true crime, it should be done as a little jingle. And maybe we should come up with one. Okay. Okay. A little spooky jingle. Have you ever heard the, ha- the Australian happy birthday song? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Mary. No, I have not. Okay, so you know how normal happy birthday songs are? I'm celebrating a birthday. I'm going to say something like happy birthday. Well, the Australian happy birthday song takes a completely different tack to that. And it starts with what I think is probably the best line of any song ever. Why was he born so beautiful? Why was he born at all? Because he had no say in it. No say in it at all. This sounds more like a makeup commercial for men. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he was born with it. Maybe he shouldn't have been born at all. (laughs) That's harsh, but that's reality. But I just thought that was the creepiest of creepy (laughs) birthday songs. I wasn't sure where you're going with that, but it's creepy, so it fits. (laughs) The funny thing was is, when I went to put Australian birthday song into Google uh, just now to remember what the lyrics were, um, Australian pedo town came up in my search bar. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that is or what that means. Um, I don't know if that's a thing. Don't click it now because then we'll go, I will just be listening to you read about what it is and that will be the entire podcast. I definitely, definitely need to clear my search history, particularly after doing the research for this week's episode. So what's been happening in the world of true crime? Well, I'm going to have to clear some browser history um, as well, because I found a really interesting story. Uh, It didn't happen last week, but it happened this year around Easter, as you will find out, because... (laughs) (laughs) Already I'm intrigued. It's got a theme. Um... This Florida family found, right around Easter time, so uh, in their mailbox, an egg, an Easter egg. It was just an egg hanging out. Yeah, someone maybe in the neighborhood was like, I'm going to gift all the families with kids or everybody just give them a treat. Inside, though, (laughs) let me tell you what was inside. It was a a Skittles candy drink. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Skittles candy drink. Yeah, that's what the article says. And I kind of wondered about that too. I'm guessing it's like maybe one of those little like little plastic candy things that you get in the candy aisle that has like Skittles flavored juice in it or something. Skittles flavored juice. Yeah. Yeah. America is a weird place. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You never went to the gas station, got those, um, those little bottles that were made of wax and you would bite the head off of them and squeeze the juice into your mouth. I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. It's been great, everybody. Mary will take this solo from here on out. Thank you for everything. Okay, so there were some goldfish crackers. Cool, classic snack. A a square of toilet paper. One square. One square, which I think takes effort to get right. I would like to see whether or not it was perfectly perforated. I think we all want to know that. Um, And a tiny scroll of religious writings. Okay. It's a okay. it's a religious it, holiday. It's a religious holiday. I think that's reasonable-ish. But alongside that 
were images, uh, pornographic images of men and women having sex. And a Roman soldier spearing a crucified Jesus Christ. And so this town was, or this neighborhood was like besieged with eggs full of snacks and porn and religious stuff. And they caught this woman. <laughs> Why do you mean, what do you mean caught her? Well, they, they were like... So they could throw her a parade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people were pretty outraged. <laughs> but something for everybody. Snacks for the kids. <laughs> Religious paraphernalia for the older people and porn. Okay, you might have you. This might be a side business that you should start. <laughs> it's like the David's Gallery of you can choose what's in your snack box. You get you get your snacks, but maybe added in as some porn and some pages of the Bible and some toilet paper. But she's ahead of her time. If it was Easter, and that was before the great toilet paper shortage. Maybe she's a giver. <laughs> she could spare a square or a lot. Oh, I think that, I think Jesus said that. Can you spare a square for your brother? Well, I mean, if Jesus is Jerry Seinfeld, then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elaine Bennis is my spirit animal. Uh, true, true, true. I think I have the nerve to just shove people over. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> when I'm excited. <laughs> you know um but yeah this how this neighborhood was like hey our kids open these things it's clearly geared towards children maybe don't show them graphic images to small children so this woman had to be stopped and stopped she was i thought i thought you guys would enjoy that little tidbit of it's not the most outrageous crime i've ever heard of but it i don't think it's a crime <laughs> oh e- email in yes <laughs> let's put up a, a listener poll is a Easter surprise for everybody in the household, a crime. I say no. All right. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I need to think about it some more and maybe eat some goldfish crackers and maybe I'll be swayed one way or the other, but I, I do want to hear what people think. So I would be more annoyed about the other things in there, like Skittles juice and having to explain to my son that he was not allowed to drink it. Yeah, it's I pure think- poison. <laughs> I'm sure. I, you know, we were talking and I think you said you also had, because we were kind of debating, like, I was like, I have a great story. And you're like, I have a great story. So I need to hear what's going on. So I do, I do have a great story. I don't know how much of it I can, I can spill, but I'll, I'll talk about some of it. So we, we talked a little bit about Hannah Potts. Or maybe we didn't, I can't even remember. I think you mentioned it. I thought you did. I thought I'd mentioned it. But Hannah Potts uh, is a girl who streamed her kidnapping on Facebook Live. She essentially did a couple of videos, and, and they are out there, they were leaked, of her talking about her kidnapping. And they're very theatrical okay like at one point she's very much like think Anna think um and she definitely you know she she says she talks about how she's been abducted by a black man the mysterious black man Mm. uh with a maroon car she also talks about 
how like he sends shivers down her spine and things like that. So a lot of very theatrical language in a Facebook live video when really you would expect somebody in her situation to be trying to give details of where she was and call the police. Sure, yeah. Anyway, it turned out that Hannah had uh, faked her abduction. <gasps> and was in fact staying with some friends. Shock and horror. And so the police located her and and everything else. But here's, here's the deal. One, obviously her family, she has a twin sister, she has another sister, she has nephews, she has parents. And they were clearly devastated. And um, having seen some contact from her sister, like her family had no clue, they had no idea, they genuinely thought she was missing. And so Hannah's excuse for doing this was that she was writing a manuscript and she wanted to stage it so she could write a more authentic manuscript. And the two people that helped her were characters in her book is this really the i was writing a play we were practicing a play scene <laughs> defense this is how old is this girl 23 oh yeah it, it, it she isn't 15 if she was a teenager i was thinking like learned. eight <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if she was a kid i think there's a bit more of an excuse for like histrionic behavior but she's 23 years old. She's just a grown-ass woman. Oh, man. This is crazy. I am I would laugh more, but the whole, like, come on. Like, blaming it on a black man is, like... Awful. She needs to be punished. Like, that's just, you know... She could have got somebody killed. That's yeah. That's literally how you get somebody killed. So there's that. Yeah. And then putting your family through that is just crazy. But then saying it was for book or a manuscript i mean we've both worked with some heck of pretentious writers in their time but this takes the absolute cake on that yeah i mean that's just such a like that's not even a, it's nowhere close to a decent excuse and as someone who's i can't tell if she's imaginative or not <laughs> i mean this is ridiculous so is she has she had mental issues uh reported before or is this this is this a one-time thing where she broke reality and decided to do something extreme i don't think you can be fully mentally healthy and do what she's done unless she's just a real selfish bitch (laughs) (laughs) to not care about anyone else's feelings to potentially get someone hurt that's an extreme level of sociopathic behavior i think so the other little bit of kind of (laughs) spill the tea the other little bit of spill the tea gossip is she was working with or being hidden by this other woman, Maria, who had joined a number of true crime online Facebook groups and was like reading posts and liking them and things like that. Maria was part of it? Anna was. Chained in the basement in Maria's house. What? Wait. <laughs> it's, it's a ruse, but she's actually chained in the basement? It's a ruse for a attention. Uh, oh, sorry, so she can better understand the motivations of her character. 
but was also chained in the basement. I'm so lost. Okay. But that's all we know. Those are all those pieces of information are kind of publicly available right now. I I want to know who Maria is. I don't want to make any judgments about Maria, but I feel like she's holidayed in Metharalia. Her full name is Maria Crystal Metheny. Anyway. <laughs> That's a that, good one. That was my... I don't think it eclipses your porn eggs. I, don't, I think they both have their merit. But I think they both have their merits too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So I got to say, I was a little disappointed that we're not doing the eyeball killer. Because I don't... I had not heard that story, but I think true crime listeners will agree with me that it sounded intriguing. But you do it. I'll do it. I'll just... Okay. I know you'll do it. So what happened with the eyeball killer is I I got all the bits and pieces together. <laughs> and it's okay, but it's just really me talking about a man removing someone's eyeballs for an hour. Ah, spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. And there's only so many ways you can say, and then he removed her eyeballs. <laughs> so I'm going to do a little bit more research and just make sure that we talk about something other than the eyeball removal, enucleation, enucleation. I do know the word. I've written it down about 30 times in the last few weeks. I just, I just want to keep hearing you say it. Okay, don't say it. Uh, but I'm excited. You, you had some really good details you said coming on this other case. So I have not heard of this one unless it jogs a memory, but the name you gave me didn't, didn't jog it. So I'm ready. Oh, I named him. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> but I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm excited. You're ready. You're yeah. ready for today. Okay. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to be ready to tell the story because it's a ho- horrible one. But it's also one of my favorites because it is so intriguing and there's so many onion layers to it. I'm going to talk today about school card killer, otherwise known as Randy Craft. That sounds like a made up name. His real name was Randolph Craft. Oh, that sounds like a character in a book about wizards or something. <laughs> Randolph Croft. <laughs> oh, <laughs> use that intonation. <laughs> Randy Croft was originally known as the freeway killer before being known as the scorecard killer. Another name for him was the Southern California Strangler, which I think is a little bit too descriptive. I would agree with that. You want to be descriptive, but you don't want to be obvious. I think it just lacks imagination. Although I'm kind of interested this might become a thing on Instagram. I kind of want to know what's the most specific serial killer name that people can come up with. Randy Craft, the Southern California like to use ligatures in order to strangle people killer, (laughs) was a serial rapist, a torturer, and he was convicted for the mutilation and deaths of of at least 16 young males from 1972 through to 1983. And he mainly operated in California, but he also operated in Oregon and Michigan. We're going to rewind till 1983. We're in SoCal. I, I feel a little bit weird today. Like, it's almost like I've, I'm feeling the pressure. Oh. Which is really weird, because we've never had any pressure on here before. Oh, because it's just for us, you know? And Barack Obama. I'm sure he's listening. Oh, yeah. Bloody Michelle Obama launched a podcast the same week as we did. 
I was so annoyed about it. <laughs> I mean, like, I get- wasn't. Because Michelle Obama is an angel sent from heaven, obviously. Yeah. But, and also, her first guest was, was Barack, which I think is cheating. <laughs> because they know each other, they have great rapport. Like, what a great intro, you know? On top of, he's cool too, so... I know he's cool. He's awesome. <laughs> he's amazing. What an incredible guest to have when it's your husband. Yeah. No one wants to listen to my husband talk about servers for an hour. That's true. People have written in and said, please don't do that. <laughs> Just, kidding. Saying, like, Just kidding. I feel like it's unfair to not only be beautiful, successful, incredible fashion icon first lady, but then launch a podcast in the same week as, you know, me and also have your first guest be Brock. I think it's just not so how do some people get all the breaks? Throw us a bone, lady. Throw us a bone, Michelle. Feature us on your podcast. Ah I think she'd be into the eyeball killer. She well, I don't know. She's probably much more sophisticated than that. You can be sophisticated and love true crime. Oh, you can absolutely be sophisticated and love true crime. I think she's just too sophisticated to sit around drinking wine while laughing about the eyeball killer. Hold on, let me put my wine down. (laughs) But that's why, even though she's Michelle Obama icon, we're still cooler. She has everything and I have my one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Anyway, back to not being mad at Michelle Obama. I'm going to uh, listen to it. Oh, I'm going to listen to it too. Of course I'm going to listen to it. <laughs> I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to rate it. I'm going to give it five stars. And I'm sure it's going to be amazing. And I'm really excited by it. I hope that it's exactly like Jada Pinkett Smith's round table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and That's that it's all stuff. just like a mess of gossip and accusations and... <laughs> throw down between the two of them yeah i need entertainment in my life so all right here's okay randolph randy craft so we're gonna rewind all the way back to may 14th 1983 and we're gonna go to chip officer california highway patrol officer michael sterling i believe chip officer uniforms pretty high on the hot scale Yes, I would agree with that. On the uniform hot scale, I think they're pretty high. They they got that classic look. I think the wayfarers that they often wear alongside of them, and yeah, I th- I think it's I a was good about look. to say the aviators. Yeah, yeah, it's a good look. Uh, Sergeant Michael Howard was accompanying him. They noticed the defendant's car, i.e., Randall Crafts, weaving really extensively, and they saw it go over the fog line. So they activated their wigwag lights and that's the official word did you know that i did know that because they use that in film as well oh do they he really didn't comply but eventually they got him out of the car and when they did they noticed his jeans were unbuttoned and they smell alcohol from his person so they do the field sobriety test and they notice there's a passenger in the front seat of the car, but they don't talk to him at first because they're, they're busy making sure that he can, you know, sing the ABCs backwards, which I can't do even when sober. And I really worry about that. 
<laughs> it's like one of those tests that they actually give you of, are you going to have a stroke or not? <laughs> you have a stroke. <laughs> yeah, and then you have a stroke. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, chips. It's, it's many things that I worry about. The idea that I would get pulled over for a DUI when sober and then not be able to recite the alphabet backwards and I would get arrested and I'd be really embarrassed by that. Or rub your tummy and pat your head at the same I time. I can't do that either. It takes, it takes some time to think about and I think that's not fair. So just give me a test. Give me a definitive scientific test. Not like a... How does my brain yeah. work test? No. <laughs> give me a blood test. I'm a millennial. Give me some kind of... <laughs> give me some kind of brain test. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine them with like, those like calipers that measure how big your head size is. <laughs> that like debunked Nazi science. What's it called? Phrenology? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. I, no, I think that's right. Oh, it's just a whole load of useless information up in there. That's my brain test. Okay, so he's got he's got the the pants unbuttoned. He's got alcohol. I mean, maybe he just had. Was it around Thanksgiving? Did he have a big Thanksgiving dinner? Yes, that's exactly what was happening. And the person in the seat had eaten too much turkey, and all the trip to van had put them to sleep. And that's the end of this episode. <laughs> well, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, I welcome. You're welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, remember to like. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> So eventually they go and they look at the passenger. And so they try and rouse him and they start looking at him. And the passenger has like a jacket on his lap. His hands were at his sides. He appeared to be asleep. And there's like a beer bottle in the car. There's a broken beer bottle on the floor by the driver's side door. When they look at the passenger, a portion of his bum is visible as his jeans have been pulled really low. And they try again to rouse him. They get in the car. They, they start seeing pills in the car. There's Ativan in the car. There's a knife in the car. There's pill vials. And they keep trying to rouse this guy. Eventually, they check for vital signs on the passenger. He has no pulse, no respiration. And his pupils don't respond to light. He's clearly dead. That is grim. That's a grim scene. So the victim was identified as a Marine who was stationed at El Toro Marine Air Base. He was 25-year-old Terry Gambrell. His friends reported that he had been hitchhiking to a party. um, And when the autopsy was done, it turned out he was killed by strangulation, probably by ligature. And he did have a lot of drugs and alcohol in his system, particularly tranquilizers. Obviously, when the police discover a dead body in your car during a field sobriety test, they tend to want to do some searches. Reasonable. We could spend a lot of time talking about, you know, asset forfeiture and seizure <laughs> of things. But in this case, I feel like the police were onto something. So they search his car. They find a lot of interesting things in there, including 46 photographs. And these photographs, Randy at the lake, Randy with like a really big zucchini that he grew. And no, they were mostly pornography, mostly naked men, some of whom appeared to be dead. I want to make a joke about were there any Easter eggs, but I feel like that would be inappropriate. (laughs) 
was waiting for you to give me a go or no go. <laughs> you cannot in any way, shape or form, trust me. I think everything's funny. If, if you're out there and you're wondering uh, like, what is the limit of what I would laugh at, I'm like, pretty sure it doesn't exist. Uh, April and I were talking earlier about the fact that her parents had listened to this podcast. Hi, April's parents. Hi. And uh, I was like, oh, I wonder if they liked it. I can't imagine my parents listening to it. I'm pretty glad they're dead right now. <laughs> Which, Which you... I thought was funny, and then April was clearly horrified. I wasn't horrified, I just, how do you respond to that? Because of course we have a similar sense of dark humor. <laughs> By laughing, it's funny. I've been with you during this time, and I'm just like, oh, oh. <laughs> that, that is good. That's good. It is true, the death of my parents has been very difficult, but also it's... <laughs> It is funny that they're not alive to see me launch a murder podcast. Okay. So in the car, they discover a bunch of photographs, mostly pornographic, uh, particularly some ones where the person in there appeared to be dead. Obviously, that was pretty, pretty strong indicator that there was something more going on here. The other thing they found uh, in there was a list. So this list later became known as Kraft's scorecard. On, On the scorecard, there are various one line, two word statements, things like stable is one of them, airplane hill is one of them. So the police started to really look at Randy as a person of interest in a number of different crimes. The passenger seat cushion of his car was found to be saturated with blood. However, neither Kraft nor Gambrill was the source of the blood. When they started to examine Gambrill, they obviously discovered ligature strangulation was the cause of death. And then they started to become aware that several recent murder cases involving young men also involved ligature strangulation. So these included victims such as Eric Herbert Church. His body had been found on January 27th, so a couple of months before, uh, on the northbound on-ramp to the 605 freeway, having been dumped from a vehicle. Jeffrey Ann Nelson, who was another victim of craft, his nude, emasculated body was found on Euclid Street on the, on the on-ramp to Garden Grove Freeway on, on February 12, 1983. Roger James Duvall Jr. was also found in the Mount Baldy area around February 14th, so within two days of the previous body being found. A photograph that was found in the car when they searched it showed an individual wearing clothing really similar that, to that worn by Church when the body was found. Um, there were also photographs of Duvall taken post-mortem found in the trunk of the car. Nelson and Duvall had last been seen alive together, so it was obviously very suspicious that these photographs were found, particularly when one of them appeared to be taken post-mortem. I mean, more than suspicious, let's be clear. Uh, when the bodies of Nelson Duvall and Eric Herbert Church were found, all three of them had alcohol and Valium in their system, 
and Nelson and DeVore had propanol. So it's very similar to the condition that uh, Gambrel was found in. Because of this, more search warrants were issued and the detective in charge of the case started to really put together that there were a number of missing men and murder cases in this area. Most of them found in very similar ways to the, the four that they originally linked them to. Oregon State Police told them about Michael O'Fallon. He was a young man whose body had been found in an on-ramp to Interstate 5. He was a victim of ligature strangulation. He had alcohol and diazepam in his system at the time of death. What was interesting is O'Fallon was missing a pocket Kodak Instamatic camera with the initials MJO scratched into it. When they searched Cross House for the first time, they found the camera. The Oregon State Police also described that a backpack and other property of O'Fallon's, including the clothing he was wearing, a t-shirt, corduroy pants and a leather belt, were all missing. These were all found in Kraft's house. And O'Fallon's body was found on July 17th, which had been when Kraft had been in Oregon on a business trip. A very sweet young man by all accounts. Other jurisdictions of Oregon police, including Lane County Sheriff's Office, also contacted to let them know that the body of Michael Dwayne Cluck had been found off Interstate 5 on April 10th, 1981. He had been bludgeoned to death but had alcohol and Valium in his system. Property and clothing of Clucks had been in possession, including a pair of black men's roller skates with white wheels. These were again found in the master bedroom of Kraft's house. A backpack matching the description of the one owned by Cluck was also found. It turned out that Kraft had been working in the Portland area, so very near Eugene, from March the 1st through to March the 9th. They then got a call from Salem, Oregon, that a nude body of Anthony Silveria had been found near a rural road close to Interstate 5 on December 18th of 1982. So we now have cases from 1980 all the way through to 1983, Ligature strangulation, alcohol, diazepam were in Silveria's system at the time of his death. He was last seen alive on December 3rd and it appeared he'd been dead around two weeks. When detectives received a list of the clothing he was wearing when last seen, Silveria's tennis shoes were found inside of Kraft's house. The defendant had stayed at a holiday inn in Wilsonville, Oregon, uh, very near to where Silveria disappeared uh, from December 1st through December 3rd. They then got a call from Clackamas County Sheriff's Office, again in Oregon City, that are, and they were told that on November 24th, 1982, the dead body of Brian Witcher had been found on a rural road in the Wilson area, clad only in jeans and a sweater. The cause of death couldn't be determined, but again, alcohol and diazepam were found in the Witcher's system. And again, Kraft had been staying at a Holiday Inn in Wilsonville, Oregon, around two miles from the location where Witcher was discovered. Detectives examined photographs taken during the surgeon's house and advised that what appeared to be Witcher's jacket was hanging in the defendant's garage. I'm almost done with all of these. I'm not going to go through all 16. Um, They are pretty horrific. But what I did want to do is just kind of really highlight some of the really great detective work that was done here to 
make sure that as many as possible of craft victims were matched to craft and that those families got some closure, which is so important in these cases. Not just counties, but interstate communication um, wasn't high during that time. So that's amazing. Many of these men were part of the LGBTQ community and we have seen in cases again and again and again where those in marginalised communities are not treated with the respect that they should be and their cases are not taken as seriously. And I think we do see some of this in Kraft's case, but when it comes to the post-Gambrell detective work, these detectives really did go all out to try and find as many of these victims as possible and give their families some justice and some closure. So during the search of the car, one of the photographs that was underneath the floor mat showed Robert Wyatt Loggings Jr. that was lying on a couch that was in Kraft's house. Loggins does appear to be deceased in the photos. They show him both closed and unclosed. An application of luminol, which we've all seen from Criminal Minds or from CSI or any of those forensic cases, it's a, it's a compound that when sprayed will show up blood, even if it's been cleaned up. Um, the couch tested very strongly positively for blood and Logan's body was found. He had been missing, again, items of clothing and personal property, which were found in Kraft's house. But the calls kept coming. Detectives received another call stating that on December 9th, 1982, the bodies of Dennis Alt and Christopher Schoenborn were found together in Kent County. Both were victims of ligature strangulation. Both had alcohol and diazepam in their systems at the time of death. A pen inscribed with Amway Grand Plaza Hotel in Grand Rapids was found inside of Schoenborn. Kraft had stayed at that hotel from December 5th through December 8th. Chris Schoenborn also had a jacket with his name on, which was inside the Kraft's garage. It is one of the most horrific cases. So essentially at this point, detectives have a dead body. They have Kraft's car full of blood, photographs. They have searched his house and discovered property owned by multiple murder victims who have been mostly disposed of in very similar ways, nude, alcohol, tranquilizers, by freeways, on and off ramps. And they also have this scorecard. So the next thing they try and do is really try and untangle what this scorecard means. It's obviously really difficult to decipher as it's mostly one words. So it could be something like hill, one is stable. And so they start to try 
and match these. But when they start to look at the scorecard, the list is nearly 61 terms and phrases. Several of the entries clearly refer to victims by their names. So for instance, one entry is EDM, which stood for Edward Daniel Moore, whereas another one says Vince M, first to his victim, Vincent Mestaz. In other instances, he indicates torture or mutilation inflicted upon his victims or the place where they were last seen. One example is Marine, head BP, and they believe that refers to a Marine found decapitated, having last been seen hitchhiking towards Buena Park. So Marine, head, Buena Park. Other entries refer to the body dump locations. There's also some indication that some of the entries indicate double murders. They think at least four on the list are double murders. The one I just mentioned in terms of Dennis Out and Christopher Schoenborn. Last seen in Grand Rapids, there's an entry that's GR2 or Grand Rapids 2. I also mentioned Jeffrey Nelson and Roger Duvall who were last seen together. Their entry is two in one beach. There is one other entry, two in one NV to PL, which has not been linked to any double murder or disappearance with Kraft's prolific murder spree. There is a likelihood that there are unknown victims out there. Wow. I I don't think I've heard a story quite like this one. I mean, as, as a someone who listens to and reads true crime a lot, this is pretty chilling. When you start to go deeper into a scorecard, there are things like Navy Whites, which they believe refers to a 17-year-old named James Sean Cox. He was an apprentice medic at the Matha Air Force Base. That was way back in 1974, so you know, almost 10 years before the events of what we were talking about. When he went missing, he was dressed in his white navy uniform. Something that's like always, I think, intriguing to true crime listeners, um, but is a double-edged sword. Maybe uh, you know, I spent some time in Orange County, LA, driving around there a lot. And so, when you say like the five, the six oh five, the four oh five, I know these areas that you're talking about, and it adds a sense of desolation to you know folks being just dropped in these places that is just horrible but i mean you also get a sense of he's he's dri- like a lot of serial killers he's driving he's traveling um it's fascinating but man this one is this one's rough yeah i mean normally we go into the kind of background of someone like craft we talk about them as a child their mother you know, who they were kind of their early crimes and we we try and really understand where they started and where where they got to with this one in particular I'm always just really interested in he was such a prolific killer for such a long period of time it almost seems strange to focus on him super early but one thing that is really interesting about him is he was a native of that area and so he was born in Long Beach California in 1945 and so he was really used to 
that freeway system. I've obviously never lived down there, but I did travel down there a lot to visit the lot. It is definitely a labyrinth in terms of those freeways, the on-off ramps, how they connect to each other. I think you could really struggle unless you were an LA native. He really did do a lot in an area he knew really well. But at the same time, he was working for a company where he was also traveling to Portland. He was traveling to Echo Park. He was traveling to Grand Rapids. And during that period of time, he was also just murdering there. That's a sense of like, I am no expert, but reading about organized versus disorganized, so someone who knows their territory, but is also, I mean, combining their real life, their real job, their real timetable with doing these murders on the road, in addition to his regular everyday life, is... I, I mean, is that organized or disorganized in a way? Is he so organized he does it? Or is it so disorganized he can't help himself, but he just happened to get away with it? Many believe that Randy Croft was essentially living a couple of different lives. One as a very out gay man, particularly on the weekends, attending events, parties. Whereas during the week, he was essentially more closeted and that there was some dichotomy between the different lives he was living. So when we talk a little bit about organised and disorganised, I almost wonder if there's a little bit there in terms of suppressing himself and then having a during the week and, and being much more from the outside, having a kind of very wholesome life in terms of the way he works and things like that and then on the weekend much more kind of party drugs he was in an open relationship with um, his partner they would often bring other people into their relationship but again we're talking about like very normal things that you know many couples do and many relationships do craft is not in any way shape or form anything other than a monster He had the organization to keep his regular life, but compelled when he saw the opportunity. He goes on these trips, he goes driving, he has a scorecard, he's keeping trophies. Compelled, I guess is the word that comes to mind. Can't help himself because these are a lot of victims with a lot of risk associated with keeping evidence. Absolutely, and he didn't split with his long-term partner, Jeff Seelig, until 1982. At that point, he was working at Lear Sigler Industries. So he was absolutely, for the most part, Monday to Friday, had the appearance of somebody who, you know, worked in a computer job, who, you know, had a nine to five, and then at weekends was much more about the bar scene and cruising and things like that. But I don't think that that's uncommon. I think that lots of colleagues out there do that. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And if that's what you want to do, you should do that. You just always be safe. But, you know, Kraft took it to a place that was like incredibly dark and, you know, incredibly opportunistic in terms of a scene that had to be secretive and, you know, had to take care of the people in it. 
um, and also, you know, probably didn't get the level of attention that they should have done with these individual murders, particularly as he was dumping these men nude by the side of the road. All of his known victims were Caucasian males. They had similar physical characteristics. Some were gay, some were straight. But at the end of the day, he tortured and murdered all of them. The severity of the torture varied. He did different things. Some were mutilated, emasculated. Most of them were photographed, particularly after they died. He was just absolutely the a monster and he absolutely took advantage of a time where maybe people couldn't be as free as they wanted to be or as out as they wanted to be or as open as they wanted to be it reminds me of um what we see you know so i mean still to this day and it's a long-term problem of the sex worker industry because it has to be secretive it has to be done covertly um People are living a double life sometimes and not for the demonization, not at all for the demonization. I don't subscribe to any judgment. I mean to say that people who have to live secretly, who have to do things covertly because of other uh, uh, pressures, it makes for a hunting ground for people who would take advantage of that. And that's really tragic. The world is changing and I'm so glad it's changing and I'm so just wish it was changing faster and that we could protect every single type of person no matter who they are and no matter where they are or what their circumstances at the end of the day like no one deserves to to be living with the fear of somebody like Robert Kraft or in their communities and for a really long period of time, this was occurring. And so let's return to his list. So as I said, there were 61, 62, potentially even 63 people on the list. 22 of the estimated number of victims um, remain unrecovered and unidentified. This is partly, again, because of several states, bodies being discarded in various locations. We're essentially saying that we believe Kraft was responsible for over 40 murders, but maybe as high as 70. In terms of his kind of formal charging, he was charged with the murder of Gambrell, obviously. He was also pointed towards a further 15 homicides and he was formally charged with those as well as uh, you know additional counts related to how he treated his victims and the murders that he was tried for vary between 1972 um, and obviously Terry Lee Gambrell 1983 all of the victims were between 17 and 25, Gambrell being the oldest at 25. Most were around 20. So let's rewind a little bit about Kraft. So who was this guy? So he was, like I said, he was born in the 1945 just after World War II in Long Beach, California. 
He seemed to have a somewhat unremarkable childhood. Uh, his mother was named Opal, which I like as a name. They moved to Midway City, Orange County, when he was about three. Um, they had like a nice little modest house. His parents worked to pay the bills. PTA. He was a decent student. He had good grades. Um, his he had two older sisters. They had got married. He seemed like a typical child. He graduated high school at the age of eighteen. Played saxophone, tennis. He liked conservative politics. Maybe a red flag. Um, but during his final year of high school, he began to come into his sexuality. He started to cruise gay bars. Um, he went to Claremont Men's College on a full scholarship and he majored in economics. So we're talking about a very smart man here. He had an interest, like I said, he had an interest in conservative politics. He was pro-Vietnam War and often attended pro-Vietnam War demonstrations. Can you imagine now looking back on it being like, I was pretty wrong about that whole pro-Vietnam thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe if he was, like, a normal dude, he'd be like, boy, I, my face is red. If he was a normal man right now, married to another nice normal man, and they were like, oh, what was your college like? And they were like, uh... <laughs> His face is with me, pro-tennis and being pro-Vietnam. So he joined the Reserve Officers Training Corps, and during his sophomore year of college, he had his first openly gay relationship. He then changed his political affiliation from conservative to left wing. So he became a liberal. And I think he later just really said it was pressure from his parents or, you know, just a real holdover for his par parents. He was obviously out at Claremont Men's College. He had a boyfriend. They were fairly out. Um, he tried to hint to his parents that he was gay. He would bring his gay friends home to meet his family. But they just didn't put two and two together. He also started a part-time job bartending at a gay bar called The Mug. Which is a brilliant name. I thought that was great. Sounds awesome. And he then began cruising for male sex workers at this time uh, around Huntington Beach. He was... Uh, arrested at this time for solicitation but again you know in the grand scheme of robert Kraft, a, a pretty innocuous start in the 60s he became a little bit more of a hippie he grew a mustache he became a democrat he worked wait 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 wait, wait. he grew a mustache proper late 60s early 70s mustache i feel we need to I feel we need to rate it. I'm going to put some sort of rate my serial killer moustache <laughs> matrix together. I mean, yeah. I feel like there's information to be found here. The Fibonacci sequence is at work. I don't really know how baby boomers had so much time to do all this stuff. They could like, they had free college, yet they still had time to grow moustaches and embroider stuff on bell bottoms and become serial killers. It's just, I just don't have the energy. So 
he grew a moustache, which is really the defining point along the road to him becoming a serial killer and became a Democrat, clearly. Uh, he started to abuse tranquilizers and other pain medication because he had stomach pain. Um, and yeah, he was just living his life. He was busy campaigning. He wasn't really concentrating on college. Totally normal stuff. Then he kind of did a 180. He decided he was going to join the Air Force. He did. Um, in first class. And made a decision that he was going to tell his parents that he was gay. They... His mother showed him or tried to show him love. His ultra-conservative dad was not happy about it. He flew into a massive rage. Their relationship was kind of forever broken. He also received a discharge from the Air Force on, quote, medical grounds. Ugh. Absolutely. But we, I think we can all guess why he was really discharged from the Air Force. And then so he moved back home. He took a job bartending, menial, labour type jobs. And then he started to look for some kind of escape, including pills. At this time, he also met a runaway. He was 13 year old, 13 years old, named Joey Francher. He lured him back to his apartment and drugged and sexually assaulted him. But when Francher escaped, he didn't tell the police about the sexual assault. Um, clearly a very difficult thing for a young 13-year-old boy to tell the police. Um, and the police searched Kraft's apartment, but no charges were filed at the time. When I think about that now, there was a 13-year-old boy, runaway, that was lured into this man's apartment, and he was drugged and sexually assaulted. I appreciate that the young lad found it difficult to tell the police what had happened, and there's absolutely no blame on him there. But he did tell the police that Kraft had beaten him. And Kraft seemed to escape with no charges. That seems like a vulnerable member of the community, a minor. A runaway. And then something ha something clearly happened to him and nobody's really paying much attention to it or dealing with it. No charges filed against somebody who lured a 13-year-old runaway to his house and then beat the shit out of him. Seems absolutely bizarre to me and obviously these things just embolden craft he was like i know what i can and can't get away he learned from every experience right that he could continue to do what he was doing craft decides he wants to become a teacher he enrolls he enrolls at long beach state university he eventually starts an open relationship with another student that doesn't work out he meets Jeff Seelig, Jeff becomes his long-term partner. Kraft gets this Leah Sigler Industries computer job and eventually they split up. Seems fairly normal in the grand scheme of things. Fine, fine, fine. Except when you think about the idea that Kraft was murdering people during that period of time. You, you mentioned like he's doing the murders during his regular life. He's got a car seat full of blood, a sofa full of blood. So much sure that they like, when they test it, they're like, it's full of victim blood. 
That's so gross. I I know it's demented, but like on a humanistic level, it's like it's it's foul. Forty six Polaroids under the car mat in his car. It's definitely nowhere near the point that if you popped around for a cup of tea, you wouldn't be like, what the fuck? <laughs> I Everything about his life is like, whatever, do your thing. Up until the point where you told me that there's like multiple people's blood in his sofa and car seat. Yes, and you know, many photographs of just like dead young men chilling out on that Oof. couch. It's absolutely horrific. So... I mentioned earlier that all of these young men were found near highway on-ramps and off-ramps. And what's really a part of that story is that they were mostly thrown out of moving cars. And by doing analysis on injuries, skid marks, etc., many of these victims would have been pushed out of a car travelling at 50 miles an hour. Do you think Croft could have done that on his own while driving a car? So. Oh. The look on your face right now. <laughs> For our listeners, it's, it's a. If you don't know me in real life, one of my eyebrows goes real high. The other one doesn't move at all, but one of them is definitely. I definitely have eyebrow face, mostly when teams are telling me that they're not going to be able to ship whatever we're making on time. My eyebrow goes up. It's true, I've seen it. And I definitely had a little bit of eyebrow face today. As you've correctly guessed, many believe that that would be impossible or, or just really difficult to do. So Jeff Graves, his first boyfriend, before, became a person of interest. They lived together during the time of 16 of the known murders took place. One of the reasons why they believed Graves might be involved and why they really focused down on on this was that there was an incident in March of 1975. A young 19-year-old man named Keith Davin Crotwell had disappeared. Crotwell had gone on a drive with Kraft and Kraft had supplied him with alcohol and drugs. There was another young man in the car named Kent May. Kraft pushed Kent out of the car and kept driving with Crotwell. Witnesses saw Kent being thrown from the car and they helped the police with their inquiries trying to find Kraft and Crotwell. Kraft maintained that he and Crotwell just went for a car drive and that the car had gotten stuck in the mud and he had called Grace to come help but Grace was 45 minutes away so he decided to walk and find help and when he returned to the car Crotwell was gone and Graves corroborated that story. Okay. It completely 100% fits Kraft's MO for him to have murdered Crotwell and the fact that Graves corroborated it and backed up Craft's story indicates to me that Graves at least knew something either about that incident or the multiple incidences that occurred when he was living with Craft. 
and they started to investigate graves. But he was in the advanced stages of AIDS. And when he was last questioned, his quote to them was, I'm really not going to pay for it, you know. And then he later died before revealing anything incriminating. Holy shit. In the context of this story, that it's very dark and could lead you to believe that this was a companionship of helping and aiding that nothing conclusive, but yikes. There have been other people that have come forward that potentially could have been a collaborator with him. A book was written in the 2000s by a journalist named Dennis McDougall and in that book there's an interview with a small small time criminal named Bob Jackson and he confessed to murdering two hitchhikers with craft. What's really interesting about that interview more so maybe than that claim was that he told McDougall that the scorecard just included the more memorable murders and that Craft's body count was probably closer to 100. I mean, I kind of believe it with the way that he's slipping around the highways. And I could also believe that people exaggerate. I mean, Bob Jackson, you said? Bob Jackson, he later sues McDougal for $62 million in damages, although the case is dismissed. I mean, it could just be notoriety. It could be fame. But I do definitely think that there's some indicator here that potentially craft didn't work alone it's such a prolific amount of murders you know these were fully grown young fit men obviously drugs and alcohol were used but at the same time there are some other kind of forensic indicators that there may have been someone else there so for instance in one of the body dumps um, a young man named john leras who was found at Sunset Beach, there are footprints that unequivocally indicate that two people had carried the body. On another young man, Eric Church, semen samples found on his body were inconsistent with Kraft's blood type. The photographs of the victim found in Kraft's car had to be processed somewhere, but there was no photo developer ever in Kraft's house. He had no oh, dark That's a good room. point, yeah no darkroom equipment and no one ever reported them and I would not look at them personally but I I know those photos are out there and if the police immediately noticed that those people were dead then they were definitely not nice photos. In conclusion I think we can safely say that Kraft was an absolute fucking shitbag. Shitbag! Potentially he worked with some other shitbags Um, in order to drug, torture, rape, and eventually murder an absolutely staggering amount of young men. To imagine operating a vehicle and and pushing someone out the car is ridiculous. So I have to believe there's an accomplice here, especially for his very social, it seems, lifestyle. I don't think it's impossible. I think if you leaned the person against the door and then you leaned over, opened the door and pushed it, then the momentum would probably throw that person out the car. I don't think it's absolutely 100% not possible for Kraft to have done this alone. I do think that though there are at least 
three murders that indicate that he had help. There's the idea that there are multiple footprints, the semen samples, incompatible with cross blood type. Um, obviously, there's the, the photographs, but that's that's much weaker. Maybe he got them sent to be developed in Russia or something. I don't know. Like In the 60s, 70s and 80s, like more people had home darkroom equipment and maybe he went to someone yeah but he had a friend and he went to their house to do that for them so I think that's much more tenuous but I definitely I definitely think that if we look at Eric Church as an example the DNA evidence on the body was incompatible with Kraft and he probably would have been exonerated for that crime except there were photographs of Church in Kraft's car and items that belong to Eric Church in Kraft's house. So I don't think there's any... And obviously Church as well had the exact MO of Kraft. So I think there we can say that definitively Kraft had something to do with this young man's death. But in that case, like, why was the semen samples not consistent with Kraft? But in a party type atmosphere maybe some of that occurred and then craft occurred after depending on the timeline I think you know we have better forensic examinations now than we did then and we'd probably be able to get more information but we're talking about 60s 70s 80s and it was really the 80s by the time they were really looking at some of this these crime scenes um, and these young men and the bodies were dumped some had been out in the elements for a period of time and if it was Graves then you know Graves died in 1987 but I do think there there would be some closure for the families knowing that everybody associated with these crimes had a trial and justice had been served. Um, you know, I read through all the court documents this week. They're out there on the internet. If you're out there and you want to read them, um, they're pretty dark, but there's a lot of really great information in them about really how they went through um, finding all this evidence and linking so many of these kind of unknown cases, unresolved murders to craft. Uh, and a lot of really incredible police and detective work was done in order to do that. A huge amount of witnesses were called in the trial. It was an incredible trial. Um, and in just in terms of how long it was, uh, it began in September. It finished in April of the next year. So it was incredibly long. Um, there were almost 160 witnesses. A thousand exhibits, there was physical evidence such as bloodstains, hair, fibre evidence, fingerprints including fingerprints found on glass shards recovered from the hall murder scene, obviously photographs and negatives um, from the car, they found the belt that he had used to strangle Gambrel with, prescription drugs, knife found in his vehicle, the blood evidence on the couches, um, the defence really tried to portray Kraft as an articulate, hard-working, upstanding member of the community. And that there was some argument there that potentially 
two other serial killers, Patrick Kearney and William Bonin, could potentially have been the killers. Uh, and there was no, and that most of the evidence was circumstantial. But when we talk about circumstantial evidence, it's incredibly strong circumstantial evidence, including the photos in the car, photographs <laughs> of the dead, and the items they owned in Kraft's house. It's like the victim was last seen wearing this jacket with his name on it. A photograph of him dead was in the car, and his jacket was in the garage. It, I admit, you can't prove that Kraft killed that man but the the circumstantial evidence is insane that's bold defense attorneys if you have any interest in robert Kraft, he remains on death row at san quentin he continues to deny everything also bold. Which is a bold move. Um, and that's my incredibly depressing podcast for this week. It's incredibly depressing, but also very interesting. And I love the details that you gave. But should we talk about something a little bit lighter? Please do. Yeah, let's do it. What Have you been watching anything this week? I'm still carrying on Perry Mason, which we already talked about. Um, are you doing anything new? I'm just listening to Twi- Taylor Swift 24-7. <laughs> you did let me know that, yeah. Oh, man, I felt like there was one more out there. Oh, I mean, I did the second season of In the Dark, which I know you haven't seen the first season yet, and I keep trying to get you to. I have to finish Dark first. I've got, like, four <laughs> episodes left of Dark, and then I can get it in the dark. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a nice mix of, like, just like you were pointing out just now, a little dark, a little light. Nice to have a little of both sometimes. Because I definitely, I mean, I love a dark thriller, a dark film, a dark movie, a dark TV show. But sometimes you need a little break, you know? And I think a CW show about a grouchy blind woman surviving murder and uh, you know, with she, okay. Did I mention they run a business for supplying guide dogs to blind people? And her best friend is a vet. It's just a, it's adorable. It's adorable. So there's that plus the darkness. So maybe our listeners would like it. Perry Mason's getting good again. There was a little lull. Have you given Taylor Swift folklore a shot yet? Nothing can be done until you've endlessly listened to folklore for, like, four days. Me and Taylor are on the same breakup pattern, where hers was her emancipation from that DJ bloke, and mine was uh, leaving an old job several jobs ago. And I feel like we were in the same era. 1989, best times of our life. <laughs> it was amazing. Shake it off, partying, great people, creative high. Then we went through the reputation era together. Not great. Knew that we'd come out on top, but wasn't awesome. Uh, then we went through Lover, Rebirth, New Horizons forgot that you existed 
And then now we're in folklore, self-reflective, really focused on growth, doing stuff for ourselves, uh, a more subtle and introspective take. So it'd be interesting to see what she does next because I'd like to know how I'm going to feel. So I need to wait. <laughs> I need to wait for Taylor to tell me. Or is it that Taylor needs you to live your life so that she, then she can write about it? Maybe. Maybe I'm just a character in a twi- Taylor Swift song. That would be amazing. That's actually my dream. <laughs> Taylor, if you're out there, I'm, I'm here for you. Maybe Michelle will tell Taylor. True. Maybe Michelle will tell Taylor. I wonder if Michelle will guest on our podcast. She can tell us her hometown murder. Yeah. I don't see that happening, but maybe. Maybe one can dream. What can dream? Maybe she would tell us a, a White House mystery. Yeah, she could tell us some White House mysteries. Well, there's a great big fucking mystery in the White House right now. <laughs> oh, love it. Uh, on your recommendation, listen to the Taylor. Gotta listen to the Tay Tay. Okay. It's important. Is that a euphemism or is that... You're talking about Taylor Swift still, right? No. Okay. I'm talking about taking a potato. No. Oh. Um, Everybody go listen to Taylor Swift. She deserves it. I need some Taylor Swift after that. That episode was rough, dude. Like It was rough. I'm not... You got me. You got me. It's a hard one. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Uh... All right, guys. Sorry for the major bummer. Go listen to some Taylor Swift. Go watch a grouchy blind woman sell guide dogs to people. That's what I'm assuming that show is about, by the way. And have a really, really great week. Stay massively safe. If you're the type of person that likes to help people out, then please like, rate and subscribe to us, particularly on the iTunes store, which you'll be able to. Feel free to follow us at dark fascination podcast on instagram or dark fascination podcast on facebook we also have a website at darkfascination.com and you can email us at darkfascination.com either mary or april at and a variety of other weird emails that are all on the website um we really love doing the silly podcast and your likes comments emails just fill us with happiness glee and uh keep making it so that we'll sit up late at night with wine talking about serial killers which we would do anyway but we want to do with you we want to do with you you're our tribe right speak to you next week stay safe bye